You're listening to an episode from Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. In this episode, I'll talk about a few different subjects. Golf rage. What are the causes? And then I'll tell you a little fable to illustrate my point. The circle of friendship. You ever give your buddies the next putt? And how far away does a ball have to be for you to give them that putt? A story from the first tee this week about a guy that I call Loudmouth Larry. Negative thoughts. Does it help or hurt your game? And of course, this week at the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open, it is another coming-of-age story. Not just one, but many, like I've never seen before. It takes place at Torrey Pines on the cliffs of San Diego between the renowned beach communities of La Jolla and Del Mar. was so entertaining because there was more than just one coming-of-age story. First, there's Richard Bland, a journeyman from England, who finds lightning in a bottle for the first two rounds on a golf course that is U.S. Open condition. Heavy roughs, unforgiving greens, wind, fog, and then hang gliders shooting above the greens just to mess with your target. And then there was Rory, who showed his ability to power through the course and tempt fate again. Louis Oosthuizen took on the role that Payne Stewart took years ago with Phil Mickelson in his Father's Day style congratulations to John Rahm. And then there was Guido Migliozzi. He comes out on the scene with Italy on his shoulders, just like the Molinari brothers did years ago. Harris English, Russell Henley, Scotty Shuffler, Brandon Grace, and Xander Shoffley showed signs to come. Each one of them tested their resolve and got a taste of how the world treats winners and almost winners. Matt Wolf got an early taste of that early in his career, and like most of us, having the world watching and commenting on our every move can threaten our sense of privacy to the point where we just want to crawl up in a fetal position and hide under our chair. And that leads me to the biggest coming-of-age story, John Rahm. I don't think a room full of Academy Award-winning writers could have imagined what happened over the weekend, or particularly what happened to John over the last year. As a pro golfer born and raised in Spain, there is one great, and then there are disciples. Seve Ballestero played one and coached a Ryder Cup team like no other. His skills were only brought to light and driven by his passion for life, golf, and fellowship. He had disciples, Jose Olazabal, Sergio Garcia, and even the senior troubadour, Miquel Angel Jimenez. These guys carried the torch until COVID and post-COVID era. 
John Rahm has exposed his personal growth to the world. As a strong athlete that plays golf, his expectations always exceeded his performance, leading to public displays of temper blow-ups. Now, I see guys lose their shit in golf matches all the time, but only four of us see it. And then usually when that happens, some of us are quiet. One might be consoling, but if he's lucky, he'll have a buddy that'll call him out on his asshole behavior and get him to laugh at it. Up until this year, Rom seemed like he was on a collision course with life, like most young athletes. I see them all having the same four motivators, ego, history of winning, people around you telling you you're great, and your own personal need to prove something to the world. And here's where the story changes. John meets a girl. John falls in love with a girl in the San Diego area. They get married. They have a baby. John still has those same four motivators, but now he has a welcome distraction when he walks off the golf course. He starts to loosen up. He overcomes his shot disappointments, which usually bled into his bad disposition, which then led to another bad shot. I mean, you give a mouse a cookie. John deals with his biggest public professional setback in his life. Up six strokes, going into Sunday at Jack's tournament. He has to withdraw because of COVID. Now he has to come to terms with how he dealt with the vaccine decision. Whether he got it or didn't get it, that's really up to him. I really don't think the PGA cares. I think if somebody tests positive then they get quarantined. What we do know is that he had to forfeit a potential $1.7 million in earnings if he had won. And then he couldn't compete or see his family for at least 10 days, right before the U.S. Open. He gets to the U.S. Open. He manages his game. He manages his emotion. He subscribed to the laws of attraction, and these are his words, and willed his way to win. And so in front of us, he grows as an individual. And I look forward to see where his journey takes him. And it should be easy to follow him because I think the Golf Channel and every golf sportscaster from every tournament this point forward is going to talk about John Rahm in one way or another and chronicle everything that he does, his wins, his losses, and his family life. That is part of being a major champion and something that some of these newcomers have witnessed and even tasted for a little bit. But do they want that? Do they want to succumb to the world knowing everything that they do? I think some of them do. We'll see. Golf Rage. What is golf rage? What causes it? Some people would say just hitting bad consecutive shots can put you into an apoplectic state where you lose control. You get angry. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Your buddies are betting with you 
or you've got a match on the line and all of a sudden you just start hitting bad shots. You're not thinking you want to hit a bad shot. You're actually thinking about what you want to do, but then it's golf and bad shit happens and you'll hit those shots and all of a sudden you just lose control. Music make you lose control. Music make you lose control. Certainly it comes at a competition and the tightness that happens in competition. Because have you ever noticed when you go to the driving range and you're hitting a bucket of balls, you're going to hit some bad shots. It is rare that I've ever seen anybody curse and throw their clubs on the range. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but I'm saying... It's a lot more rare for that to happen in an area where there are no consequences than when you're doing it to win something or in front of people you want to impress or people you want to beat, whatever that is. And you can't do what you think you want to do. People just get nuts. They get crazy. Now, some things when you're playing have an effect on your performance, like slow play. Some golfers, and I play with a few here locally, that they want to get out first in the morning. They don't want to be held up by other golfers. When they're playing, they just want to play at a quick pace. They don't want to chat. They'll talk on the tee box, make a few funny comments, or just comment about something they've been watching, sports, whatever it is. But it's quick, It's and it's more about let's hit the shot, let's go to the next shot. So slow play can certainly have an effect, can be a contributor to golf rage. Nothing can be more unnerving to me when you're out playing a round of golf in over five hours, you just lose your patience. You're spending too much time looking at the people in front of you. What seems to be lallygagging, but really is what you're doing as well. They hit an errant shot. They hit one in the sand. They hit one uh, into a place where they have to look for their ball. Okay, we've all done that. But it's funny, when people do it in front of us, it just seems like it takes a lot longer because it's not us. I also have another theory about why people lose their shit on a golf course. And I would say this, that when people come to the golf course, just like when people go anywhere, they bring their baggage with them. There's something in your life that you've buried or that you're trying to forget. And that's why you're golfing. And <laughs> that's why you went to the golf course in the first place. You know, you just don't want to deal with certain shit or I'm going to have more fun on the golf course. I don't have to deal with some of these problems. So you go to play golf. But here's the thing. Those problems come with you because wherever you go, there you are. So you're going to bring your problems to the golf course. And to me, that's like having a pee under your mattress. And for those of you that have either forgotten or never heard the fable about the princess and the pea, it was a story written by Hans Christian Andersen. And I think the theme was about not jumping to conclusions about people before you know them. The story tells of a prince who wants to marry a princess, but's having difficulty finding a suitable wife. 
So one night, a young woman, drenched from the rain, seeks shelter in the prince's castle. She claims to be a princess, and the prince's mother decides she's going to test to see if this is really a princess. So before the princess goes to bed, they stack 20 mattresses, and under the bottom mattress, the queen puts a pea. And the reason she did that is because if this really was a princess, she would be so sensitive, her skin would be so sensitive, like only royalty can be, and she would feel the pain. In the morning, the alleged princess tells her host that she couldn't sleep because her back was bruised from something. And with the proof of the bad back, the so-called princess passes the queen's test and gets married to the prince. And they live, well, maybe not happily ever after, but they live. So in the vein of that metaphor, I would suggest that golf rage can be the result of a deeper-seated problem that comes to the service when you hit a shitty shot or have to wait on a shot long enough to start thinking about your unsolved problem or something else that just gets in the way. So I'll tell you a fable about the four Piccadillo brothers that lost their shit on a golf course because of slow play. One day in early summer, the four Piccadillo brothers went to Stono Ferry Golf Course in Hollywood, South Carolina for a friendly game of golf. It was the PGA Championship weekend in Kiowa. So in Charleston, every golf course was booked from 6.30 in the morning till 6.30 at night. It was almost impossible to get a tee time anywhere. They get to the course and see on the driving range, it was just packed with all these anxious golfers. There wasn't an empty spot, so they realized, okay, there's certainly a lot of people just like us out here. And then they go to the starter. We are the Piccadillo brothers, and we have an 11 o'clock tee time, and we are ready and the starter looks at them and says, Well, boys, I got to tell you, we are running 30 minutes late. So I would just ask you, stay at the range, maybe go put some on that putting surface, and I'll call you when it's your time. Well, the Piccadillo brothers weren't happy about that. They had somewhere that they had to be that night. I mean, doesn't everybody typically have somewhere they have to be? But these guys felt, look, they're good golfers, um, and... Um, they just paid their fees, so this golf course is now theirs, as a lot of golfers think. They went to the starter a few more times over the half hour, but the starter just kept saying, Boys, we have no cancellations, so y'all just going to have to wait. I'll call your names. And right before they call the Piccadillo group, the starter yells out, Daisy, Daisy gals? Fighting the system like a two-modern-day Robin Hood. And these four 
very mature, well-dressed senior golfers who are on the putting uh, practice area all go to their carts and they're chatting it up and they're excited that they get to play, you know, again, another major weekend. And the Picadillo boys look at each other and go, oh no, we are playing behind these women. This is going to be a day. So they go up to the starter again and ask if they can go ahead of the women because they're probably faster golfers, again, hubris. And the starter's like, well, gentlemen, I just can't do that. First of all, we have a lot of golfers out there. So as these women play at a fairly good pace, I've seen them play here before. And so, gentlemen, you are behind them. And I'll call you in 10 minutes now. So the Piccadillo brothers talk to each other, and they're, again, they're commiserating. Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be horrible. This is going to take forever. We are not going to go to that bachelor party uh, dinner tonight. But meanwhile, they chose to play golf on the busiest week in Charleston. So now it's their turn to get up, and the four uh, ladies are out in the fairway. Two have hit their drives to the left, maybe 100 yards, and two hit them to the right, into the woods. And so now, again, the Picadillo boys are talking to each other. And there is one brother, I'm going to call him the rambunctious Picadillo, was the loudest of the four and the most angry and the most upset. And he says things, and he says to his brothers, those women are so slow, they are going to hold us up all day. Well, meanwhile, he said it loud enough for the ladies in the fairway who were only 100 yards away. You know, voices carry out on a golf course. And the women look up and just look at him, and he did not care. Because he is the rambunctious Piccadillo boy, and he always talks like that. And that's how he gets his way. And then after he made that comment, not but five minutes later, the ladies could look back and see the Piccadillo boys. And all four boys had the same position, one hand on the hip and the other hand on the club. Like, this is the universal golf body language for hurry the fuck up, will ya? Or in the South, bless y'all hall, would you just play a mite quicker? Every hole seemed to be backed up. And even worse, the cart girl was no place to be found. They finish on the fourth green, and the rambunctious Piccadillo boy explains, Man, we have got to play faster. My game just sucks. He had just double bogeyed the hole and blamed it on the fact that the ladies were taking forever in front of them. They get to the fifth tee box, a 500-yard par 5, short enough to get home in two. The ladies have hit... And they're off the fairway. Two are on the left in the bunker, two are on the right in the woods, almost like the first hole. They're looking for balls. They're not on the fairway. And then the rambunctious Piccadillo boy decides that they were going to play through the ladies. They didn't even ask. And he didn't even ask his brothers. He just gets up and says, man, we all playing through because it is taking way too much time. Follow me, boys. So... The four brothers hit their drives. Four! And they all hit their drives a hundred yards past the ladies somewhere on the fairway. They get to their balls 
and they see there's another foursome in front of them on the green. So they're like, okay, we're going to have to wait. We're going in two. Meanwhile, the ladies have found their balls. They're about to hit, and they look up, and they see the Piccadillo boys in front of them on the fairway. The Daisy girls decide to do nothing about it and just stand there. But as one of the Piccadillo boys looks back, he sees the women looking at him, and he's familiar with this look. This is the look that his wife gives him when he fucks up, when he does something that is self-centered, that doesn't do anything to help the family, but does something to help him. He is used to seeing that. And did I just use the term fucked up? I mean, motherfucker, that changes the tone of this whole fairy tale. The women don't do anything. The Piccadillo boys all go at the green in two. They all miss. They end up in a sand trap. One ends up in the water. All of them get a six on the hole. They putt out. They get in their cart. And now they ride to the next hole. They had a two-minute cart ride because... The path took them through the woods, through the neighborhood to get to the sixth hole. And when they turned the corner and get to the sixth tee box, they all said the same thing at the same time. Well, holy shit. The sixth hole was a par three. There was a foursome on the green and a foursome waiting on the tee box. So the Piccadillo boys had to stand there and wait for the Daisy girls to finish the last hole and come around the corner. And they were just hoping things would speed up, but they weren't speeding up. The guys on the green were taking forever. And then the foursome in front of them was just getting up to the tee box to hit. And around the corner comes the Daisy girls. It was at this moment that he knew. He fucked up. As they were waiting, the four Daisy girls drove up behind them. One of the Piccadillo boys saw the expressions on their faces again and quickly realized it was that same similar expression he got at home with his wife. So he decided that he was probably the smartest and probably the most articulate of the Piccadillo boys and that he was going to go up to the ladies and just talk. And while the ladies were visibly upset, they kept their southern cool and just suggested, in the future, we just ask that if you boys want to pass us, just come up to us at the tee box and certainly, if there are no players in front of us, we would let you go by. Well, the smart Piccadillo brother just kind of stopped or interrupted her and said, Ma'am, we are so sorry. Would you like to play in front of us now? We, we made a mistake, and we thought it was open in front of us. We could clearly see that you're not holding up anybody. It's all these foursomes in front of you. But with the tact of a southern lady, she just responded, Heavens no. You boys seem to be in a hurry today, and we certainly wouldn't want you hitting into us on your way to go wherever you're going. So we'll just stay behind you and watch y'all hit today. The well-spoken brother acknowledged the lady, said goodbye, and walked back up to his brothers and said, I said we were sorry, and I offered to go behind them, but they just said, why don't we go ahead and play in front of them? Now at that point, the rambunctious brother just basically said, well, good riddance, we don't want to watch them all day. 
Well, at that point, you could hear the sound of karma enveloping the rambunctious one. He gets up to the tea box and he tops his tea in the par three, proceeded to hit every drive out of bounds from that hole on and three putted every green. You see, the moral of the story is that good things do come to those who wait. And the other moral is, don't mess with Southern Bells. They will bless your heart to death. Bless your heart, it's really quite a shame. Bless your heart, you're playing all these games. Bless your heart, you're the only one to blame. Bless your heart, bless your, your The circle of friendship. You ever play a match and everybody in the foursome, or at least one guy, wants you to putt out every putt? That's fine for the PGA. That's fine for college golf. That's fine for amateur competitive golf and club golf. But for weekend golf, that just slows play down to a snail's pace. You kissed it. I'm a snail. I like to take things slowly, nice and easy. That's my style. Cause when you take things slowly, every inch is like a mile. There's no need to hurry. It's the way we make. Most weekend golfers establish the rules of the day for them. Mulligans on the first tee. Roll them in the fairway if it had just rained or it's muddy out there. Some even play out of bounds as a lateral hazard just to keep the pace of play up. Inside the leather on the next putt. Gimmies. Gimmies when the competitive team thinks it's okay to give a gimme. Sometimes you give the next putt because the team has already lost the hole. Why add insult to injury? Maybe their putt is so close that even a blind dog could kick it in. So you give it to them. Which leads me to the topic, the circle of friendship. I'm a part of your circle of friends. How close does a ball need to be so that it's considered a gimme on the next putt? The only thing that feels worse than an errant drive out of bounds in the pond or topped is missing a three-foot putt. It's so close that the expectation is that you're going to make it. And if you're missing three-foot putts, your competitors know they got you on the hook for the match. I mean, when you miss a three-foot putt, it makes you feel foolish. It embarrasses you. It shows that you lost your concentration. So we have a thing here called circle of friendship. And the question becomes... How far does your generosity extend? The circle of friendship is amorphous. It takes on different definition depending on circumstances. You ever notice how generous the circle is in the beginning of a match? I mean, I've seen five foot putts given on the first hole and 18 inch putts contested on the last hole in the same round of golf. 
Some would suggest that in golf's psychological warfare, giving putts early in the round gives your competitors a false sense of security. So later on in the match, when your competitors have the exact same putt that you gave them on the first hole, you're quiet. You're not saying anything. You're, you're not saying they got it. You say nothing. And they realize they have to put it out. Psychologically, they might not be ready. They might not be prepared. The basis for this strategy is they just haven't had time during the match to build confidence. When you shock them with silence, they're taken back. And now they have to engage their mechanism to read the line, the speed, the contour of the green, and believe they could make it. I've seen a lot of guys, including myself, miss putts late in the round when they were given putts earlier in the round. Putting calibration between your brain and your hands takes a few drills on the putting green before you play and a bunch of putts on the course while you're playing. So if you're in the beginning of a match and your buddies give you the putt, you don't have to pick up the ball. You could say, thanks, got it, and then just stroke the ball and get the feel of the green. Never just pick up your ball and walk off the green without a chance to practice rolling the ball, finding the path on the greens. Because as you saw with John Rahm on 17 and 18 to win the championship, he had already had 70 holes of golf. And he had watched his ball on that hole for at least three days. He had won a championship on the 18th green before. So just the accumulation of all of those putts helped him understand what he thought the greens were going to do. And boy, did he execute. And if that doesn't work for you and you get worse during the day than when you started, then that day you just suck. Practice more. Build some confidence. This sport is all about believing you can do something. And the more you practice it, the more you see better results. I mean, beans, beans, the magical fruit. The more you eat, I think you get what I'm saying. I get to meet a lot of different characters on the first tee. I mean, there are bachelor parties every weekend. Imagine the collection of scoundrels I get to experience over the weekend. So last Friday morning, eight golfers come up, two foursomes, and a pseudo bachelor party. They all arrive at the same time, and they're talking about the previous night's festivities, which a lot of guys do when they're celebrating a bachelor party. And I love it. They, have, they really come down here to have a great time. So then I hear this voice in the crowd, part of the eight. And you hear a guy come out and he says, where are the tortillas? 7,000 yards, 142 slope, 75.1 rating. Where are those tee boxes? Now, you've got to be a low single digit handicapper to play from the way back tees at Charleston National. Matter of fact, they don't even put the tee boxes back there anymore. Play is slow enough as it is over weekends without those boxes. Otherwise, it could be a six-hour round. I mean, having guys do consistent marsh walks 
and pencil breaking with high scores, it's just not worth it. So I told this group that they remove the black tees and they reserve them for tournaments only. Only 3% of all golfers at Charleston National play the championship tees. That's not even the way back tees. Those are the green tees at 6,700 yards with 138 slope. It's hard and it's not for most golfers. So this guy who speaks up, we'll call him Loudmouth Larry, starts telling his playing buddies, you guys are going up to the white tees there. We call those the member tees. And he goes, those are the old man tees. I mean, who says that? His friends, or should I say the other guys that were also invited to play golf during the bachelor party, immediately get in their carts and drive past the green tees up to the white tees. Now, Loudmouth Larry is in the second group and he still won't let it go. He keeps saying, you guys are playing from the old man tees, 6,450 yards. It's 132 slope. Most average golfers will struggle at the white tees. All par threes have a minimum of 150-yard carry over marsh with water and no safe zones. The only place to hit over the hazard on some par fours is over bunkers, over marshland, over water. It's not an easy tract from the whites. I've seen guys looking like they were 30 years old, teeing off from the white tees. And when I see them come off of 18, they look like they're in their 70s. This course has a way of fucking with you. I'm old and I'm not happy. Everything today is improved and I don't like it. I hate it. In my day, we didn't have fancy tobaccos. If you wanted to smoke something, you took grass clippings and smoked them. It burned your mouth, seared your nostrils, made your eyes water, and tasted like horse manure. And you liked it. You loved it. Whoopee! So Larry watches the first foursome hit from the whites. Two of the guys hit monster bombs right down the fairway. The other two guys were right off the fairway. But clearly, the white tees were right for this group. And now Larry's group is getting up there and they just pull their carts right up to the whites. And he stands back again. You guys playing from the old man tees or are you going to play from the ladies tees? And then he looks at me and he goes, they're trying to take my advantage away from me. I'm the big hitter in the group. I need to bring him back here. Well, I used to play with a guy like that. And I think I've told the story before. A guy with, let's call it a 24 handicap brings everybody back to the pro tees because he's getting so many strokes, he figures even the better golfers can't get on in regulation, but he could get on in one more than regulation because he can't hit it as far. But with that stroke, he figures he'll win a few more holes. Well, that worked until it stopped working. Anyway, we get back to the first tee box and the other three guys hit. Two of them hit it to the left into the woods. One hits it way to the right of the bunkers. And now comes Larry, who's going to win the day for the group. Larry goes up to the tee box with an iron. Now, I've seen our pros do that. And I've seen guys who hit the ball 270 to 300 yards with their drivers, not pull out their driver on this hole. Because an iron, a long island, if they hit it far, 
a long iron will be perfect for them. So Larry comes up with an iron and I'm thinking, maybe this guy's a pro, you know, maybe he's like our pros and he's going to just smack it down the middle to 50. He takes his club back and he hits the ball almost straight right. He doesn't even make the bunkers that are 150 yards up on the right. It's embarrassing. He takes another one, yells breakfast ball, takes another ball out, tops it five yards. This is Loudmouth Larry who wanted to bring everybody to the Wayback Tees. So Loudmouth Larry, here's the life's lesson. Karma's a bitch. And golf is the Zen master teaching all of us life lessons. You have a lifetime to snatch the pebble from the master's hands. Be smarter. I seek not to know all the answers, but to understand the question. And Larry, just shut the fuck up and play. Let your playing do the talking. And my last topic, is there a place for negative thoughts when playing golf? Have you ever been playing and you hear one of your partners say, this hole is my worst hole, or I hit it in the water every time. I hate hitting out of sand traps. Three holes into a match. And this guy says, hey, it's just not my day. Or you have one guy helping another guy out and he goes, whatever you do, don't hit it to the right. You don't want to hit it to the right. When I hear negative thoughts from people I'm betting against, I feel like it gives me a mental advantage. It doesn't guarantee me a win. Too many other factors go into that. But I find negative thoughts beget negative results. Hi there. Are you a negative thinker? Have you had thoughts like, I'll never be anything, or I'm such a loser? Well, join the club. I'm not here to tell you to not think negative thoughts. Hey, that's a double negative. Sweet. Welcome to 24-Hour Emotional Fitness. And our minds, when we're playing sports, just don't comprehend the word don't before an action. Like, Don't think of an elephant. Okay, how long were his tusks? Because when you tell somebody don't, they think about the next action. They'll even sit on the tee box thinking to themselves, I'm not thinking about the knot. But if you get up to a tee box and say, don't hit it in the water right, don't hit it in the water right, water right becomes your mental target. Target locked. The word don't has no place in preparing for a good shot. Your brain can only process one thought. So what should you be thinking about? A lot of pros would say they just clear their mechanisms and they don't think about anything and they swing. Well, you have to think of something. A lot of the times you'll have a swing flaw that you're fighting against. So you've got to certainly think 
about how you need to position your hands, your body, or whatever that thing is, that fault that you have, you have to protect against that. But the number one thought you should have when swinging a golf club is where's my target? Target neutralized. The target is your primary thought. If you want to protect against hitting into a certain area, then find a target away from that area that allows you to fade or draw or hit whatever shot you have at that target. Allow for a little bit of mistake, but don't think of the word don't. Aim at targets. Don't avoid hazards. You've got the entire day of golf ahead of you. You're going to have to deal with bad hops, hidden winds, the rub of the green. So in what you can do to control yourself, give yourself a chance. Aim at a target. Think about a target. Keep it in your mind when you're swinging. While the target is in your mind's eye, focus on the ball. Some people like to look at a dimple or a mark on the ball. Some people just like to look behind the ball or I'm going to hit the back of the ball. Some people look in front of the ball because they're trying to get their club through the ball. And then some people just look in the general area like the blur of an impressionist painting. Whatever your brain has to see for you to come down and hit the ball where you want to hit it, that's what you're looking at. But the whole time you're thinking about target. You ever see Steph or Michael or LeBron throw a no-look pass? Their mind's eye is focused on their target, their moving target. That's one of their players. And they don't have to look at them. They kind of know in their mind's eye where the player's going. And maybe in their peripheral vision, they could kind of see it. But they have a sense of where that player is going and where they have to throw the ball. They're target focused, just like golf. And your target might not always be the middle of the fairway or the flagstick. There's so many factors. Your lie, the wind, elevation that will determine where your target needs to be. And wherever that is, that's what you're focused on. Tiger Woods used to always say he would look for a patch of grass 280 yards down the fairway. I mean, good for him that he could see that far. For me, I try and find trees way behind wherever my target direction is because I could see a tree and focus on that when I'm swinging the club. It's not going to go that far, but I think I could at least get the path of the ball right. So back to my story's theme. Is there a place for negative thoughts on the golf course? No, it doesn't help. As a matter of fact, I would apply the credo to life. I'm a fan of the book Laws of Attraction. It's been good for my golf game and certainly has helped me off the course as well. Just saying. You've been listening to an episode of Tales from the First Tee. I'm your host, Rich Easton, recording from beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. Talk to you soon.